Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, the story of beer, writes my guest John Arthur, is a chronicle about how we as a species have interacted with each other, created prosperous societies, survived difficult and challenging times, and ended up where we are today. Beer continues to be a critical food source for millions of indigenous people today, providing a fulfilling and nutritious meal. After water and tea, it is the most consumed beverage in the world and continues to unite the vast majority of communities through daily and ritual life. Through its very long history, beer has led to new technologies, ensured health and well-being, imbued life with ritual and religious connections, and built economic and political statuses. John Arthur is professor of anthropology at the University of South Florida. His most recent book is Beer, A Global Journey Through the Past and Present, which is the subject of our conversation today. John Arthur, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. Well, this is uh, a dream come true to talk about beer on the podcast. Although we've already talked about bourbon, which is even a greater, I guess, what you're most interested in, you do first. So bourbon and, and then beer. That's the bees. Uh, Got to stay with the bees. We'll stick with the bees. W is a way down the list now, I guess. Yeah. So, um, what's the earliest evidence of people brewing beer? Because I think the answer shot will shock the listener. Sure. the The earliest evidence of beer occurs thirteen thousand years ago from a cave in Israel, and What's remarkable about it is that it's not some like everyday household place where they found it. They found it in this cave that where you have these ritual burials of, of, of people and they're buried with animals like snakes and lizards and wild deer and boar and oryx. And they and then the technology is fascinating because they carved into the cave floor these pits and um, Lee Lu from Stanford University went out there and studied these pits and found that the the malt was um, pounded and um, they had enzymes that showed that there was fermentation going on and they they placed in these pits these really tightly woven flax uh, baskets where they were they did all this and uh, so it. It's not a mundane site. It's a it's a ritual site where they're they're producing this beer. It's the first five minutes of our conversation, and already it's the punchline to every historian's joke about the archaeologist. The answer is always ritual practice. So, yes, 
Well, but well, cross culturally, actually... we see that <laughs> <laughs> just over and over again. It just replicates itself from the past all the way to the present. Um, Eleven thousand years about... ago, this was not a kosher kitchen. It's it's uh, no. it's it's. Uh, but they're making beer. Do, does there any how? And, and we know it's beer because of the you said the malts and the yeasts can be now detected. Yeah, they studied the starch grains and um, what's called phytoliths, or these little silica uh, substances that occurred in plants. And they could tell microscopically that they, and through the experimental research that they've done at Stanford, that these uh, microscopic uh, starch grains and phytoliths have been gone through the same process as you would make beer today. So that is an indication, too, that they had already been doing it for some time before this. Yes, I think that I think the antiquity of beer goes way, you know, I don't know. We don't know how far back in time beyond uh, 13,000, but obviously the technology and the the innovation of, of this knowledge has to go back farther in time. We just don't haven't been able to see it yet. Right. In fact, you write, I believe this the theory that our ancestors stumbled into beer by accident, like they just left some. Oh, rotten grain out and then ate it, which is a weird idea, undermines the vast knowledge that our ancestors likely had about the intricacies of plants and how to manipulate them to produce a vast array of culinary treats. Yeah, I, well, that's just the way I look at uh, the past and how I look at people today. Uh, it's been written, you know, that that they just kind of fell upon this innovative idea of Oh, you know, some grains got fermented in the end of bottom of a pot, and and they decided to drink it, and it made them feel good, and so they figured out how to do it. But I think um, people for thousands and thousands, if not millions, of years of our ancestors have had this really intricate knowledge of nature and knowledge about plants, so much more so than than we do today. Um, that I don't think that in some places it might have been a, a completely accident, but I don't think uh, overall. I think most people knew what they were doing, um, and and did and experimented, and you know, figured it out over time. But I, I don't think it was just something happenstance. It, it, there's a weird thing it, it, in well, maybe not just popular mentality that somehow experiment and investigation began with Francis Bacon. Um, it's not like it's not like there can't be like 10% accident, 90% investigation. Let's call it investigation if experiment's too loaded. Um, people yeah. poke, people poke around, they tinker. That's what we do. You know, chimpanzees do. do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's this whole idea that, you know, people were, and our ancestors would eat fermented fruits um, off the tree. Right. And then they would, and birds do this and they get drunk. And so, they must have been able to figure out that, well, if we we process grains, which were wild at this time when this Rockefeller cave in Israel was, you know, uh, being utilized for this burial project, burial site 13,000 years ago, all the grains were wild. So this is four, about 4,000 years before the domestication of grains. Right. So this is this gets us to a very old debate, which some listeners might have remember. I didn't realize it went back to the 50s. Uh, did beer stimulate the desire to domesticate grains? And right. um, which 
occupies still a lot of headspace for people, you know, because this is kind of like, this is what the drunken frat brother remembers from an anthropology lecture. You know, he <laughs> takes with him when he becomes a partner in a law firm. Well, you know, we didn't make grain for bread, but for beer. This is what I learned in college. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the debate started in, in 1953, and, and Robert Braidwood is a, was a famous archaeologist, worked in the Near East, and he got together all these uh, big players at the time. And Jonathan Sauer, he was a botanist at the University of Wisconsin, and he he just could not believe that people would go to all this trouble of domesticating grains for bread. And I always say, do you get more excited walking down the beer aisle or do you get more excited walking down the bread aisle? And I think do I, people do I have to choose. Beer, they get <laughs> yeah, they like the former. <laughs> yeah. So that, but it, based on the antiquity of this cave site in Israel, it's clear that um, if it st if beer stimulated the desire to grow to domesticate grains, it took several millennia for that desire to grow and grow and grow. I mean, people have been doing it yeah. for a long time. Yeah, I mean, we still don't really have a good understanding of why plants and animals were domesticated. There's been so many things written about it, and we're still trying to grapple with that uh, huge revolutionary idea. But, you know, it was probably populations had to get bigger, um, technology change. I, you know, for me, I, as a, you know, I study pottery, ancient pottery and modern day pottery in Ethiopia. I thought that pottery and beer would go hand in hand. And so we don't see pottery for another, again, 4,000 years. Um, so they're, they're motivated to make the beer and figure out the technology before they figured out how to, you know, fire clay. That's really interesting. So people are making beer like in the stone pit before they actually have crafted pottery. Yeah. And then later on, just a little bit later, they have these really elaborate stone bowls that they carved out of basalt and they're beautifully uh, decorated and they're very uh, st standardized in terms of size. And so I, it's been postulated that those were being used for uh, drinking vessels. So to appreciate the, this global history of beer and its antiquity, um, we have to appreciate, you emphasize that we have to appreciate beer as a food, not as an industrial product. So let's, what, is, what do you mean beer as a food? What, what is beer as a food? Well, it, it's... it's Beer for indigenous societies in the past and present um, is one of the most important foods, daily foods, and also a ritual food. But for daily food, people are drinking it. Um, it's like liquid bread, in a sense. It's, it's healthier than unleavened bread. It has uh, rich in amino acids, vitamins, minerals. It fills you up. And most importantly, I think when we look at and if you ever lived in an indigenous society that doesn't have clean water, you know that uh, water diseases are a major issue and they kill almost over 800,000 people a year. But the fermentation, the slight fermentation in the beer kills all the bacteria. So I've gotten sick drinking boiled and filtered water in southern Ethiopia 
I've never gotten sick drinking the beer in Ethiopia. Um, and so, and it fills you up. And so it's just a, a very important, I think our idea about beer, you know, we think of it as a kind of something that supplements a meal or something that's fun to go out, you know, watch the ball game and drink a beer. But for, for most people, indigenous people around the world in past and present, it is one of the most important foods out there. In the time scales that you think by, not the ones I think by, but the ones you think by, the fact that we have just forgotten like last night that beer was a food. Because, of course, in the United States alone, people are drinking small beer for breakfast as a chief source of breakfast food into probably the 1820s. Um, and they understood perfectly that beer is a food. Uh, everyone's drinking it. Um, it's, it's, it's much better than it's, – it's safer than drinking milk, let alone water. Um, so – so, but this is a very, so this is in human terms, this is a very recent forgetfulness that beer is a food. Right. Because we've been inundated by, you know, the big industrial brew houses, right? And well, also, uh, we see it on so, commercials and. Also coffee and tea. I mean, things like other right. stimulants, stimulants rather than food. And we could say, we could, if you want to be moralistic about it, I guess. Right. Yeah. But I think I think that's changing now with with the craft brewing industry and and they're kind of, uh, pardon the pun, tapping into this idea of of using a lot of alternate types of ingredients. Yeah, I, I, this is this is my podcast. I'll do the puns, please. Uh, the uh, <laughs> but what is interesting is that uh, you know beer is the solution to multiple problems of indigenous people, not indigenous people, if we want to in include indigeneity to include like Anglo and German Americans in the 1820s, sure. it, it solves problems all the way up until quite recently that people have. So it's not just the nutritional, it has, there's political, social, and spiritual problems as well. Could you explain those other, like, and also it, it then answers technological problems and then feeds technological growth. Right. I mean, the whole aspect of refrigeration really came about with the advent of, of beer, right? I mean, when you think mm -hmm. about uh, that invention, yeah, and just all the different types of uh, creative ideas that brewers have had over the years probably stimulated other types of crafts and ideas and, and then stimulated monumental works such as, you know, building of the Great Pyramids and uh, the the great ziggurats in Mesopotamia were all all those workers were being fed by uh, beer and so and and today when indigenous people um, you know they make a dollar dollar fifty a day they don't have the capital to be able to hire people to do work like harvest or plant crops or build a road or a bridge um, but they have the grains that they can turn into capital as a form of beer to feed people because people, again, think of beer as a food. So it's not, you know, we do the same thing when, oh, will you help me move and I'll bring you, you know, I'll buy you a six pack and, and give you some pizza. So it's, it's not that far from what we do, but, um, 
but that's how people get motivated um, to do things um, in a in a community. I guess thanks to the Bavarian uh, purity laws, we think of you, you. You say that people now think of beer as being water, grain, hops, and yeast, um, but it's actually a lot more complex than that. What does that sort of four-part formula? What do we miss completely about beer throughout most of human history? Yeah, well, most of the the beer throughout history and even today is was made with. Uh, well, hops did come into into vogue until like 800, 900 years ago. So most of the beer before that was made with all kinds of ingredients, um, lime, uh, lingonberries, like up in sweet and Scandinavia and Sweden, um, ginger, um, garlic, uh, all kinds of berries, just anything that you can really think of, um, people were putting in beer to flavor it and, and maybe actually as a, as a way as of a preservative as well before hops became uh, so important. So water, grain, flavor slash preservative and yeast. That would be yeah, the, and the, the yeast. Be is the gonna, yeast. Yeah. And the yeast is going to be um, like a Lambic beer, like a Belgium Lambic beer. It's going to be uh, airborne. Or it's going to come from the previous bat brew um, in the bottom of the vessel, wood vessel or ceramic vessel, and then it's going to inoculate that the next batch. So um, it's interesting how early, though, there's uh, evidence from Mesopotamia how important strains of yeast and carrying strains of yeast is. Um, you know, it's that's limited prior to refrigeration, the ability to do that. But still, you can see there's that's part of the brewer's art. Right, and and mo and the beer because it's not refrigerated is only going to last maybe five days, and it's going to get stronger over time. So you've got to drink it. Uh, it's not something that you're going to be able to to sit on or or put, you know, put in your even if you buried it in the ground to keep it cool, it, it's still going to need to be drunk pretty quickly. So that that has all ra other ramifications in terms of when people are drinking it and how they're drinking it and, and the, the effects of it as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you, uh, you, you cite the hymn to Ninkasi, which is fantastic. Uh, from when's it from? And uh, what does it tell us about who brews beer and like the technologies for brewing beer at this, what, at the time of its composition? Sure. The, the hymn in Nikasi, I mean, it's a beautiful poem. It's really the earliest uh, written word about beer and about the, and it gives us a little bit of a indication of how beer was produced in Mesopotamia 3,800, 4,000 years ago. Um, it, it tells you about the, I mean, when you, when you watch brewers make beer in the indigenous world, it, and when you interview the women, and we know from the hymn in Nikasi and from the other hymns that it's the goddesses of, of, of beer that are being discussed. It's not the gods. So women are always associated with beer production and drinking. So, And then when you look at indigenous societies today, it's by and large all women that are making the the, the beers. I mean, there's some cases 
ethnographically where we have men making it, but um, it is the hardest work um, that women, when I interview women in Ethiopia, it's like one of the hardest things that they do because it's just very time consuming. Um, from everything from collecting the grain, um, cleaning the grain, and then you got to then you got to go in and collect the water, and the water sources are going to be far away. Uh, all kinds of things. So um, I've uh, always argued, and it's hard to see gender in the archaeological record, but I, we've we've gotten better at it. Is that women were the innovators of brewing, and probably mostly fermentation of other types of foods uh, around the world. How, how would you see gender in the archaeological record, particularly in relation to brewing? Well, it's difficult. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you can look at, um, you look at the, the records of uh, in Egypt and Mesopotamia, where they're talking about some of the earliest, you know, goddesses associated with beer. Uh, you could look at different aspects of where brewing is occurring within the household. Um, associated types of materials that you're find, finding with brewing. For example, if we look at some of the early, one of the biggest breweries in uh, Peru during the Wari period before the Inca, we can tell that women were making the beer because in the brewery, they're finding the pins that are holding the shawls, to get, the women's shawls together. And because it's so hot when they're boiling the the beer they're taking off their shawls and they're losing some of those pins into the ground and so when archaeologists come back and found that site they find these pins and then there you go you have a, a direct link to women uh making beer that's some lovely detective work and also it's a lovely insight into just a very something that could happen to that very commonplace every day losing the pin from your shawl just it just yeah. kept capturing that little everyday casual accident yeah and that's that's the kind those are the kind of things too that we're missing in a, we can see them some cases but all those little decisions that brewers were making in the past those are the things that we're trying to um, tease out of the archaeological record and we're getting so much better and I always tell my students archaeology, is changing. It's no more like pots and and stones and all that. I mean, that's all important, but it's really going down to the microscopic world. And that's how, you know, uh, Lee Lu found this um, when she went to Rockefeller Cave in Israel. She went to the microscopic level and was able to see uh, the brewing process. Otherwise, you would just say, oh, it's a stone pit and that's it. Let me, people are going to be astonished at that. Um... I remember the first time I came across the sort of pollen archaeology. There's a, a garden on the south side of the James, a place called Bacon's Castle, where they recreated the 1685 garden, which I still seem to think of as this kind of like black magic. And maybe they're in league with like, you know, a witch or something like that. But it's but that's through pollen archaeology. And it's just, it's crazy. So how, how do you do that? I mean, you see, we can't see this on the video, but because you're not seeing one, but he seems to be as stunned as I am, even though he's a trained archaeologist. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, when you look at ancient DNA now, you look yeah. at the phytolist, like uh, you look at the starch grains, this is all brand new technology that when I was an undergrad or even an early graduate student, we didn't even 
think about we we had DNA, but not to the level that we have now. I mean, now we have the whole Neanderthal sequence and <laughs> and know that Neanderthals are related to us. So, um, yeah, I, what's going to happen in the next twenty years? Yeah. So these days, you guys go around like CSI or Bones, collecting every little bit of dust from every level to analyze it and see what you can make of it. I, I imagine that's the the that the process of archaeology is even more painstaking and focused on the very tiny. And it is. It's very specialized too, right? So it takes a team to do archaeology. You can't do it by yourself because you which has been which has been the case things. since even the tw early 20th century despite Dr. Sure. Henry Jones Jr and his, you know, omni <laughs> omni capacity, yeah. <laughs> yes, he was amazing. He was amazing. <laughs> but uh, so now you need a team, and and like you're all archaeologists, but kind of the stuff that you're saying is incomprehensible to each other without like a translation. Yeah, we you have to have everybody working together, and 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 think of new ways to try to investigate. I think that's really where we're going to go, and trying to understand how these brewers were making beer and and all the little decisions is to be able to parse that out um, yeah. so you're an anthropologist so that you're always making connections between various cultures in a way that is sort of um out of bounds for historians or at least we, we don't do it probably as often as we should um and so what what sort of continuities can you can you see between continents and cultures that never ever like met i'm thinking about you talk about the ancient egyptians and the and the rara muri of mexico making chicha but there are certain certain continuities that the beer demands of the brewer i guess yeah so where i work in 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 southern ethiopia among the gamo um and this is how it all kind of started was yeah i didn't really even i didn't really even um when I went to start working there, I had no idea I was going to start working on beer. Uh, it kind of fell into my lap when I was interviewing um, women and I was looking at all their pots and, and I started to see on their pots that the inside of the these big vessels were completely eroded. It looked like somebody had chipped the inside out. And I asked the women, I go, what's going on with these pots? And they said, um, the beer is eating the, the pot. And so what's happening is the pH is getting lowered from the lactic acid and it's actually eating the ceramic vessel away. Oh. And so you can see this all over the world now. Um, in Peru, you can see it in, in, in England during the uh, Anglo-Saxon time period and in some cases, Neolithic Greece. Um, and so all these, and then beer, and then I started to realize, wow, beer is um, so important to Gamo society. And the continuities that you're asking about is that all societies, past and present, um, use beer to connect to their ancestors. The ancestors are always with them and you have to appease the ancestors. So uh, for, for the health of the people are living today. So you, what you do is you, in all these cases, vast majority of them, they 
they feed the ancestors first before they engage in any type of beer drinking themselves. So um, talk about, let's go back to the, the Gamos. Um, you thought about, the, started thinking about this also with a guy named Couche. Um, and yeah, he was my landlord Couchy. at the time. Yeah. He was your landlord. So you're, you're, you're sort of traveling around with him and he's drinking beer. So what did you start to realize about him through beer? Yeah, well, it was kind of, you know, during my research and then we would, my wife and I, she's also an anthropologist, we would go out and we would um, do kind of a survey to try. I was working with potters and she was working with hide workers who use stone tools to scrape the inner fat of hides. And so we would go around looking for these artisans and Calci wanted to go because he wanted to see other part of, you know, the Gama world. And um, so he would go with us. I said, okay, just bring your lunch. And he would always come with a gourd of beer. I go, Couch, you got your, your lunch? And he'd, hand, he'd hold up his beer and, and he would be happy because it's filling. It's like porridge and you would feel good during the day. And, and, um, and Couchy is, um, he's a, in Gama society, it's stratified. So, the reason why I wanted to go study there is because it's a caste system and there's a high cat, there's high caste and then there's low caste and the low castes are not allowed to engage in drinking beer with the high, high caste members. Calci is a very wealthy farmer. So he was able, his wife, not him, but his wife was able to take the grains from their farmland and then convert that into beer. Uh, if I had a hide worker or a potter with me, there's no way that they would be taking beer with them for for lunch. They just don't. Ha- they don't have the the means to be able to produce the beer. So uh, we should ask you because this is important for I guess other indigenous beers. You say that the beer is like porridge. We haven't probably talked enough about this. Um, there's going to be a, a idea. No matter what, people are going to be thinking this is like Guinness, or they're going to be thinking it's like Miller. Um, but what's, what's this, what's this indigenous, yeah. what's, what's Gamo beer like? You say, what's what it? It's like oatmeal with, with like, that's like, is it effervescence or what? No, it's not as thick as oatmeal because they do filter it through, um, like a grass filter, um, like the early Europeans did with their beer. Um, but it is thick and it's, it's a little bit thicker than Guinness. Um, mm-hmm. it's not as dark. Um, it's kind of, kind of a pale brown, it's kind of a sour beer, kind of a, if you like sour beers, you will like, uh, most indigenous beers. So it's got, again, um, just that, the kind of lactic acid that kind of gives it that kind of tangy, uh, flavor. Uh, of course in Gamo, they're not using hops. Um, so they, they infuse the beer with, um, ginger and garlic um and i find it quite tasty um, but it's very filling (laughs) yeah it's very filling yeah um so they're also using beer for sort of they're using beer as an everyday food but they're also using it for ritual practices is it the same beer or is different different beer beer. yeah so how do i distinguish then 
is it merely the setting and the ceremony that distinguishes the the, the, the use? And and how do I how how is beer used for a ceremonial practice in the gut with the gamo? Sure. So in Gamo, they have what's called these ritual leaders, uh, halakas. They have other types of ritual leaders. But the, the halakas are, are caught in a way. They, they become so wealthy that um, the community catches them in a sense. And they want them to redistribute their wealth. I know that's a very controversial topic in the United States. But um, they don't want them to become too wealthy. And so the way that they redistribute their wealth, they go through a, a nine-month, gestation period, a rites of passage where they transform into these ritual leaders. And what nine months? That 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 seems significant. Yes, all ritual all rites of passages in Gamo go through a nine month gestation period. So you're actually reborn into nice. this new status. And then you have to once you're reborn, you have to produce two beer feasts. And they have to produce up to 500 gallons of beer. So this is an incredible amount of labor, not only for the ritual leader's family, but he's got to get all of his friends, his clan members to help with this. And then they, they have these big beer feasts and that provides for, they feed the ancestors because that's going to make the ancestors very happy. And in a sense, he's bringing fertility and health upon the community by providing these beer feasts. At the same time, he's redistributing his wealth back to the community. It, this is so fascinating because I just uh, I my head is filled with ancient Athens right now because I just did a podcast and uh, on it, and, and of course, an Athenian would recognize this for what it is. This is like a an aristocratic Athenian in the demos being obligated to provide a liturgia to to fund a trireme or a tragedy or something to keep their wealth down to redistribute their income to the rest of the the polis and to make sure they don't get too much above themselves exactly it's the same it's it's the same it's a different setting but very 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 similar yes yeah and people have been doing this all over the world um it's not just in like in ancient Greece or in Southern Ethiopia, but really yeah. almost everywhere. So let's talk about uh, this other spiritual aspects of, of beer in Africa. Um, so you talk about the Kofiar um, uh, in Nigeria. Uh, they have this, but, but everyone has a sort of spiritual aspect to beer. Um, could you explain that? And this is, I put in the notes, this is like, again, getting back to the ancient world, this is something that Paul is talking about to the church in Corinth in many ways. This gets back to food sacrifice to idols and stuff like that. These are still very, this is not a 2000 year old, you know, conversation. This is a ongoing continual conversation. Right. And it goes back probably beyond 2000. Oh, much. I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the Kofiar who live in northern Nigeria, but you could go really anywhere where you've got um, present day indigenous beer being brewed in Africa. It Everything, all the rites of passages that I talked about, like with Gamo, you know, but we could go into birth rites, uh, marriage, death different types of leadership, um, all those, ref and with the Kofiar and with many other societies, beer is always part of those ceremonies. Um, and also with work ceremonies as well. Um, and it has caused some tension with um, 
you know, colonialism and the push for to Christianize indigenous societies. So we're in Gamo in southern Ethiopia and in other places, um, different religions that have come in, like where I work, the Pentecostals have come in and they will, if you want to join the Pentecostal church, you can't drink. And so potters aren't allowed to make beer vessels um, if they join the Pentecostal church. Uh, so this has changed. So there's tension in some places between um, Christian ideals and kind of the more um, indigenous religions. Well, it's interesting because this is, uh, at least in that case, it's uh, the there's a sort of a, a certain Western ideal of teetotalism, um, uh, which is then met in Pentecostalism. But it's also interesting is the is a much older problem of the food. Can you use, drink food, eat food that's also been offered up as a ritual sacrifice? Um, you know, is that is that a possibility? Because this is, um, I don't know what, what the word for it is now. I'm just going to say it because it has, does it have a spiritual power that you shouldn't touch? Does it have, uh, you know, an, an, an extra additive, you know, property that you shouldn't be, uh, that you shouldn't be around? Yeah, it's the, the fear of it, right? That, that they're scared of, of what this could conjure up, uh, mm -hmm. of drinking beer and, and, and how it might affect the people too, when they're drinking beer during these ceremonies and, and so they tried, you know, they've tried to limit this in different parts of Africa and other places around the world. And it's going to, and then this kind of cuts along various in Christian amongst the Christians. Uh, it's going to cut along various fault lines of belief and practice. So you, there are very different practices you're describing between Catholics and Pentecostals, you know, in regards to that. Indigenous right. Catholics the, and indigenous Pentecostals. Yeah. The, yeah. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church has no problem with, um, you know, brewing a beer. Um, and that was, you know, Ethiopia was Christian before most of Europe was right. So, right. um, that goes back way, way back, uh, you know, 2000, 2000 years ago. So, um, uh, but it just, uh, it just depends on what kind of religion, you know, that's come into to different parts of, of Africa. Yeah. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Europe. Let's go to really early Europe. Let's go to the beer of Stonehenge. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised that you, if you can find beer in ritual context in a cave in Israel, you can find traces of beer and the ritual significance of beer in the very in henges. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time focusing on uh, Stonehenge. We don't have evidence that they were drinking beer in Stonehenge, but my goodness, they must have. Um, and we could even go back to Gobekli Tepe, which is uh, Stonehenge on steroids in southern Turkey that dates to 11,000 years ago, where they do actually have some indication of beer. But in Stonehenge, they haven't been able to see any beer residues in the ceramics yet. But there's so many sites around Stonehenge, especially up in Scotland. There's sites also... Um, Stonehenges down in um, and burial sites down in Spain that do have pretty good indication that they were uh, brewing beer at the time that that Stonehenge was uh, being used. 
but I, it's only a matter of time that they've got to be able to uh, unlock that. Because it fits. It's like, once again, beer is the answer to at least two problems. There's a, it's nutrition for the builders and it's, and then there's always a spiritual, con- the spiritual connotation of, of beer. And probably there's more, there's more. Yeah. Things. Just to move those colossal stones, I mean, and to carve them, um, just using a stone, you know, pestle to, 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 uh, you know, the stones are not, they're just a piece of stone and then they're made into these beautiful, uh, hinges that would take a huge amount of time. Plus just to dig the hole using a red deer antler Mm -hmm. and then to try to get these, you know, 20 ton, 40 ton stones into the hole, um, beer must've been as a way to motivate and supplement their, their diet while they're doing this, mm-hmm. which would take a you know extended period of time for a community to do this. Um, who are the briefly, who are the beaker folk, uh, which is a phrase I never thought I would ever say in my life. Uh, it's yeah, B E A K E R hyphen folk. Um, yeah, the bell, the bell beaker society or culture, it's an archeological culture. So it, it, we don't know, you know, they didn't call themselves that, but uh, that's what archaeologists call. But it it it's a, a man, it occurs right at the end of the Neolithic, uh, right at the beginning of the Bronze Age, about forty five hundred years ago, um, and it's kind of uh, Southern Europe, Spain. Is you see these types of vessels where they're kind of have cord marking on them or some type of fabric to use to to make decorative. Um, designs and they're these little these beakers and they're like perfect for drinking for like one person and you find them all the into England and most of Europe and these most archaeologists find that they're probably were associated with drinking some form of beer or a mead um, but some type of alcohol and have traces but now been discovered in the beakers or yeah, so they they have they have different types of uh, residues that have been uncovered that show you know that the beer was made using a lot of different um, types of ingredients like lime um, and other types of uh, natural plants to help um, season season these brews. Yeah, so we and a lot of them are associated with burials too. Of course, ritual significance. Um, <laughs> uh, so we've now established that beer goes unimaginably far back, far and probably farther back than there's even evidence for it as of yet. That uh, we've only talked about uh, the Near East and Africa and ancient Europe, but it's there. It's all these places. It goes way back, and yet somehow in our conception of say. Uh, pre-classical, proto-classical, and classical Mediterranean, beer is out of the picture. But based on the foundation that's been established, we know that now that doesn't seem quite right. Beer has been everywhere. Why isn't beer in the ancient Mediterranean? So it's with the Egyptians. It's with the the ancient people living in Spain. So um, is wine just a relatively recent import, sort of cultural sort of something bubbling up from the culture there and that there's always been beer beneath it? 
Yeah, I think the reason that people have argued that like the ancient Greeks didn't uh, drink beers because some of the the uh, famous writers d- describe beers as t- tasting terrible and really pushing kind of the wine. And that's kind of just been pushed through the generations of scholars. And then archaeologists now are seeing, um, they're finding sites in Greece very early, like 4,000, 5,000 years ago, where they're finding hundreds and hundreds of sprouted grain for malting. Um, there's no other indication why you would have all these you know, malted grains other than to make beer. Um, and so I think it's just a matter of, it was just kind of something that was just kind of, you know, it's like when you never go back to the primary source and you only use the secondary source and the secondary source messes up the primary source. And if you don't ever go back to the primary source, that's just going to replicate and replicate that that falsehood is going to replicate yeah. over and over again. It might be a, it might be a status and class thing um, as well. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe, I think so. Maybe ag- yeah. agricultural slaves are almost certainly drinking beer uh, for all, for, sure. for at least one of these reasons. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the Greeks and Romans, they, they looked at, uh, and we know the Romans drank beer, but um, they would always look down, you know, there's writings that would always kind of, um say that the northern europeans the barbarians were you know they would drink this awful drink and and it gets it just gets perpetuated in the literature but the, i think the archaeology now is 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 turning that tide around so you spent some time which is exciting yeah you spent some time uh going through the variety of european beers which is more than i had ever realized um would I be right in thinking that Europe is not unique in this variety of beers or is it unique? And, and if it's unique, why? No, I don't think it's unique at all. I think, uh, yeah, there, you can go anywhere. You can go to South America, um, from where well, you go Mexico to Chile and, or you could go anywhere from, uh, Sudan to South Africa, uh, and East and West. Um, it would be as diverse or more diverse uh, in terms of the types of beer uh, that you see similar to European beers. I mean, the European beers um, are popular and they're great um, and we love them, but, um, and it's, they've kind of attached ourselves to our Western palate compared to other types of, you know, indigenous beers, but um, Sudan alone has probably three dozen or more types of beers uh, that they make. And, so, and when we say um, three dozen, when, when you say a type of beer, so in the European chapter, you're talking about like Kolsch versus Lambic versus sort of Trappist. Um, so these are very different. Pale ales. Pale ales. These yeah. are different and very porter. These are very different. They color. Uh, flavor profile, all the rest of these things. So Sudan has three dozen. Oh my God! There's like an entire th- microbrewery that just industry in in Sudan. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you could almost go to every uh, ethnic group, um, probably in southern Ethiopia, which is I think there's fifty 
four ethnic groups in southern Ethiopia alone, and you could probably find uh, in each one uh, their own variety of beer that they're making with their own ingredients and flavors and colors and uh, fermentation content, you know, alcohol content and all those kind of things. Very similar that you would see in, in Europe. Very different types of beers, but the diver- diversity is it's widespread wherever you right because because it, it, it's increasing it's reading the book it's beer is about place um it's about what grows here what's the water is like here it's about who and it's about who we are um and all we put all those things together you've got different types of beer it's wonderful yeah i mean we like where you are and where i am we all have our own pride in our breweries right we we and we cherish the the brewery culture um and i mean i know tampa bay has you know a lot of we we pride ourselves in the tampa bay brewing industry it's the same thing and it is a societies it's part of their identity it's it's who they yeah. are so uh, that's very important to them in central virginia we have street fights between uh, people for vine- vineyards and brewers it's like it's getting really ugly yes. it's getting ugly around here um yeah. So what what's the theme of the book that we haven't uh, discussed that we we should have that or, or paid enough attention to? I'm, I'm... Well, we talked about let's see, we talked a lot of, about nutrition and religion. The other two are looking at technological change. I mean, that's really something that I mean, they just uh, just recently, like in the last few weeks, they came out and found um, some of the earliest straws for drinking beer oh, yeah. in Southern Russia uh, that date to 5,000 years ago. So, uh, and they have strainers on them. So the idea of even drinking beer out of a straw is odd to the Western palate. But you gotta remember that I'm, I'm, a lot of these beers are thick and they have stuff in them and you don't, and you wanna have a strainer to kind of yeah. keep that stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm counting, it's gonna be months, not years, until there's a place in Charlottesville that's offering straws of beer. I, I, I yeah, bet some money on it. will be paper straws. Oh, they'll be paper, but with a filter in it too, just to be a little bit, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or like metal straws. metal straws, probably recycle, you know, you can wash them and that yeah. sort of thing and you could buy one. Um, so I, I got the whole line. If anyone wants to write to me, it's al at historicallythinking.org. I can give you that. Um, so you uh, end with recipes. Uh, could you explain this very serious book from Oxford University Press, which has footnotes, and yet you end it with recipes? Why did, why did you do this, and how did this come about? Um, yeah, well, I wrote the book... Um and been working on it for many years. Um, I, w- I do the first um, course in um, the Br- U- University of South Florida, St. Petersburg Brewing Arts Certificate. So I teach about the history and archeology span of indigenous beers. And, I, and when doing that, I wanted to kind of talk to brewers who wanna make better beer and brewers who are working in breweries about different ways of using these ancient indigenous recipes in their own brews. And so um, my editor and I thought, well, it would be a good idea to include some recipes um, because if people are wanting to learn about um, indigenous beer, what can they, if they're a home brewer, what can they do to, you know, 
investigate and, and experiment with different types of, of flavors. So we included, uh, I think, a half dozen different brews, and, and they've all been tested. Um, some of them have been done um, in classrooms in like experimental, experimental archaeology uh, courses. And then a couple of them are, were winners from the students who um, brewed beer in the USF St. Pete um, Brewing Arts Certificate. And one of them has, is using stale bread like they did in Mesopotamia. And one of them is using uh, chocolate and infusing kind of, it's like an oatmeal stout, but it's infused with chocolate. And the chocolate comes from uh, Pinellas County here in, in the Tampa Bay area. So again, trying to use natural local um, products. Before I ask what the best starter recipe is, could you explain what experimental archeology span is? And isn't that just an excuse for people to be a reenactors? Yeah. Um, well, experimental archaeology is, I mean, it can, it can encompass anything, but it's really trying to, I mean, really, we don't have a very good idea about how ancient beers were made. And so trying to take all the evidence that we have in the archaeological record and then trying at best we can recreate what these ancient brews were about. So. Um, that's pretty much what experimental archaeology is. But you could do experimental archaeology on how was Stonehenge built, and people have done that. Um, but you can go all the way from monumental architecture all the way I was, to yeah. production. I was just reading a paper by a guy who uh, is a flint napper, and he's a professional archaeologist at the University of Colorado. And he's uh, trying to making fulsome points versus Clovis points, or like, you know, it's, especially with the points that you find in North America. Some of them are they are they shards or are they points? Well, the the best way of doing that is to make one and use one. Um, they use they use they use uh, atlatls and fulsome points on like buffalo carcasses, which is you know pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah. That's a that's experimental archaeology yeah. for you. Yeah, no, I mean, our whole idea about the ancient world and their technology, we're just trying to grapple and trying to figure this out. We, we're so far removed from um, the innovation and, and the their science, really. These indigenous people had their own science, and we, we're trying to uh, understand that better. And experimental archaeology allows us to do that. And, you know, what I do in, in Ethiopia with what's called ethnoarchaeology, so studying modern people's technology to understand past technology that is also how you know i got into understanding the importance of beer so um if you if you marriage experimental archaeology with ethnoarchaeology that that is really you get you start to start to figure things out one question about ethnoarchaeology which since i'm a historian and you're an anthropologist and i just did a podcast like a month ago that came out on change over time um this is the i mean i'm a historian so i'm immediately thinking wait a second don't things change over time how can you do ethnoarchaeology how so how how does it work to do an ethnoarchaeology to relate how people are doing things now with these brewing vessels to what the Gama were doing. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's like, were they doing it 300 years ago, let alone a thousand years ago the same way? Yeah. So the two things for, for uh, ethnoarchaeology, one is to try to understand, you know, tech, the technology. So we don't, we have, you know, 
potters that make pots today, but it's mostly for like tourist trade and all those types of things. But we don't have potters that are making um, pots for everyday cooking and serving and storage. But the Gamo do do that. And they're making pots right now as we're talking. Um, So you can understand that. But also the second most important thing is trying to change our world views about technology and the material world. And, and we have a very, you know, we're trapped in our Western view about how we see things in the material world, but indigenous people look at material worlds in a very different way uh, as material worlds is living. They go through the same rites of passages as we do. Um, And so it helps expand our, our minds and try to understand maybe how um, the indigenous world thinks. And just going back to that question, how, yes, there is vast changes. Every generation changes. It's not the same. But there are things that we clues, for example, the erosion on those in on the interior of those pots, right? That I saw. Now we can go look at those pots in the ancient world all over, and we can start to see that, and we have. And then we can start to see that people were brewing beer. So the Gamo has actually, their science and their brewing techniques have, have told us in a way how to, to read pots in the past. Um, I'm going to conclude with uh, uh, one of my favorite lines about history historians, uh, which listeners to the podcast have heard far too many times, that it's not the, really the job of the historian to explain the past to the present. It's the, it's so much as to make the present seem weird, um, which I like, for, I like very much. I like it so much that I think I, I came up with it. I, I don't know where I heard it now. Um, I, trademark. Yeah, I should. I, I, I would imagine that, um, you know, just based on what you just said, even that one of the, a similar line for anthropologists might be something like, I don't, I don't imagine that what you're doing is the normal way of doing things. Um, and so I was thinking that relation to drinking beer, when you're talking about the ritual nu- nutrition uh, practices of drinking beer, it's very different than me drinking a yingling down at my favorite dive bar in Charlottesville. Um, and, and I'm a very much mistaken if I think that other people are drinking beer in the same way or see that it holds the same significance. Um, I'm just curious to, to, for you to use your anthropologist's glasses and see like an anthropologist with me. Um, what do you, what would you see when you go to a microbrewery in Charlottesville or in uh, the Tampa Bay area? Um, if I asked you to see how people are drinking beer there, what would you notice that I might not notice <laughs> or what would, and how would that say differ from a, say a neighborhood bar in the same area or from an indigenous practice or Gamo people drinking beer, you know, in a, in a celebration. Well, I wouldn't see it that different um, from the Gamo to uh, a brewery, whether it's in Charlottesville or in Tampa Bay, I would see that it's a, it's bonding people together. It's a place where um, whether it's a, a ritual site in Gamo or a brewery that it's bringing the community together um, that people are meeting new people from uh, different walks of life. And then, you know, if I wanted to get into the weeds as an anthropologist, I would start looking at 
you know, what are the ethnicities? What are the, the sexual orientation, gender issues? Uh, who's working in the brewery compared to who's drinking in the brewery? I could get into all of that, but just on the... What kind, on what the kind of beer they're drinking? What kind of beer they're drinking, yeah. And how much are they drinking? And, and then what are they doing while they're drinking the beer? Um, those are all things that you can see um, aspects that are very similar. It doesn't matter if you're a, an indigenous society or, you know, downtown St. Petersburg, um, there's going to be similarities. There's also going to be differences, but there you can see the similarities. And it's really that, that co beer, beer brings us together. It, it's a cohesion. And, and one of the more, more important things too about indigenous beer that's maybe a little bit different than Western drinking is that beer is always done communally. Beer drinking is always done communally. And that's very important. People don't drink beer by themselves. So that's an important aspect between people drinking in a brewery and also in Gamo that people are drinking together. They're not drinking it as an, for, as an individual. And I think that's really the most important thing. So there's no alcoholism in a sense, in indigenous societies with, with beer brewing, because there's rules to how, what you drink, how much you drink, and where you drink. Well, my guest today has been John Arthur. He's the author of Beer, A Global Journey Through the Past and Present. John, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.